We are launching a new series tonight on worship. I'm so excited. Holy Roar. It's going to be a slide that's going to pop up after the kids. Come on, that's good, isn't it? Sometimes we just see Jesus as this kind, quiet, gentle person with children on his lap. And he is that. But he's also this. Come on, he's got some sharp teeth. He's got a roar that sometimes he lets loose in the world. And I think sometimes he does that because he's trying to model for us a roar that can come from deep within. And oftentimes that roar finds its place of expression in worship. We're going to be doing this, too, in conjunction with Wednesday night. So if you've not signed up for that, I know we've been talking about that for weeks now, but I hope you will change your schedule, that you will do whatever you need to do to join us every Wednesday night starting this week. This week's just going to be a, a time for us to get to know, a potluck dinner, and we're going to do some icebreakers. It's really just about relationship, and then we'll dive into the medium of the, the material the following week. The Life Group will follow a set. So next week, Pastor Justin's going to take us into the first part of this book, Holy Roar, and then the Life Group will be a, 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 an exploration of what we just did on the Saturday prior. So we feel like it's going to have a good flow. So I hope you will join us in it. This series is going to be taking a look at these seven Hebrew words that translate as praise. Now, the English language, right, we understand is not necessarily as precise as some other languages are. And, and so when we look into the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, that every time our English Bible says praise, oftentimes it's a very different word, a very specific word in the Hebrew language. And in this book, Holy Roar, Chris Tomlin and his pastor begin to unpack these words for us. Sometimes when you see the word praise in your Bible, it's talking about the hands of praise. Sometimes it's talking about the celebration of praise. Other times it's talking about the music of praise, the expectation of praise, the posture of praise, the song of praise, the shout of praise. And see, so when, when, when you begin to realize all these different words, it changes sometimes the way that you read those verses. And, and oftentimes it is freeing for you to posture yourself in a different way than maybe you ever have before. But tonight, instead of talking specifically about these seven words, I wanted to share a little bit tonight about my own journey and how I became introduced to this idea of psalmic worship. I'm going to explain what I mean by that in a minute. This, this practice of worship, what you see us doing in here on Saturday night, has not always been a part of my life. There, there was a, a time in my life where I stepped into a setting, like maybe some of you stepped into this setting tonight, and you're thinking to yourself, what on earth are these people doing? It might be new for you. It might be unfamiliar to you. And it was for me at some point in my life. Psalmic worship, let me just give you some, some words here, is expressive. Psalmic worship is the idea that it is a worship that is born out of what we learn from reading the book of Psalms. It's expressive, meaning that you take feelings that you have inside of you and you let those things come out. It means that you don't just keep them stuffed down inside. 
You, you might have feelings and thoughts about God. You might have feelings and, and thoughts about your circumstance and your situation. And psalmic worship gives you permission to say, hey, you don't just have to keep it in here. It's supposed to come out. It's expressive. It's participatory. Psalmic worship is we study in the Bible that people come into corporate settings and they begin to engage in the act of worship publicly with one another. It's not spectator. It's not concert. It's not come, I'm going to sit and be entertained. It means I'm going to come and I'm going to enter in. It's band led through instruments as we see in the book of Psalms. It's prophetic. What does that mean? It means what we just talked about, that God is a living God who wants to speak. And when you engage in psalmic worship, you will begin to find that you will have a sense that God is speaking to you. And you will have a sense of things welling up inside of you that you want to say to him in turn. Psalmic worship is loud. It's loud. Did you know that when the Bible talks about the voice of God that describing it as still and small and quiet is the exception. Did you know that? The majority of the time that the voice of God is described in the Bible, it's thunderous, it's loud, it's frightening. It's the reason why the most repeated command in the Bible is fear not. Did you know that? And the reason why it's fear not is because when God speaks, it frightens people. Because it's big, and it's loud, and it's boisterous, and it's thunderous. Are there times where God is still and small and quiet? He is. He is when that's what we need. But more often than not, we need God to show up in our circumstances in a loud and pronounced way. I remember the first time I was exposed to psalmic worship was back at Mechanicsville Christian Center, which is the church that we came from back in 2007. When I graduated college in 1989, I started going to church with my parents out of respect. I had moved back home with them. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. I was not a Christ follower, and so I would show up at church with them. But I found that when I would go to church with them, that during the time of worship, like what we just did together, I became very uncomfortable in that setting. And one of the reasons I became uncomfortable is because as I, I looked around the room, I, I had this realization that the people that were there, they had a sense of knowing God in a way that I did not. And they had a sense of being known by God in a way that I did not want to be known by God. Because my, my, my life was not one that was necessarily noble. And so when I found myself in an environment surrounded by people that were celebrating this idea of knowing God and, and being known by Him, that was frightening to me because I didn't want to have this feeling of God seeing me. And I certainly wasn't interested in this feeling of seeing him. It's interesting that when you are around people that are practicing things that are supposed to be a part of your life, that they begin to visibly influence you without necessarily even talking to you. Let me give you a practical example. Watch someone yawn 
and try not to yawn yourself. Some of you, when I just said that, you were like, I can't help it. It can be impossible to resist. Even reading about yawning can make you do it. A new study offers insight into why contagious yawning is such a powerful force. Yawning when others yawn, the study suggests, is a sign of empathy and a form of social bonding. Kids don't develop this deeply rooted behavior until around the age of four. Did you know that? Kids with autism are half as likely to catch yawns. In in, in severe cases, they never do. Yawning might eventually help doctors diagnose developmental disorders. The work could also lead to better understanding of the subtle ways that people communicate and connect. It's fascinating, isn't it? See, there is something about the way that God has wired us and designed us that we are influenced visibly, oftentimes, by other people. And so those years where, and months where I was stepping into a setting and an environment where other people were worshiping, what I didn't realize is that God was using their visible expression to begin to create in me a desire that I didn't even know that I wanted to have. I, I was so uncomfortable in those, 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 during those couple of years where I was, before I made a vow of devotion to Christ, that, that I had become so familiar with the order of service that I would time it out so that I would slip in during the last song, like some of you do here. I would slip in during the last song so that when it was time for people to sit down, it appeared as though I had always been there. But week after week and month after month of being in that setting, seeing people demonstrate this incredible feeling of knowing God and being known by him began to influence me in a way that began to change who I was. A mentor of mine, Reverend Dr. Katie Holman, who's the Associate Dean of Education at Valley Forge Christian College, she, she, she would always like to say that, that Fred, in the, in the modern church, we are stained glass windows to one another. It's good, isn't it? I, I love telling that story as we look around here because the beauty of these stained glass windows, they inspire us. Every one of these stained glass windows tells a story, and you and I are supposed to be that for one another. We, you and I are supposed to be seen by other people. You you and I are supposed to be visible in our expressions of worship with God to other people because our lives are supposed to influence other people in that way. In the same way that I would show up week after week, and many for those people, I was a stranger to them. Little did they know that their acts of expressions of worship was beginning to change and shape who I was. Every single Saturday, one of the reasons why I get so excited to come in here and worship publicly is because I know that there's the possibility that a younger version of myself might be wandering through those doors. Somebody might be coming through those doors who does not know God and who doesn't want to be known by him. And then it could be through my expression of worship, through your expression of worship. You become a living stained glass window to someone that begins to stir up inside of them a desire that they did not even know that they wanted. Listen to Psalm 40 verse 3. He has given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. Listen to what it says. Many will see what he has done 
and be amazed, and they will put their trust in the Lord. What's the psalmist saying here? That your visible act of posturing yourself in a place of worship in and of itself declares the goodness of God in a way that becomes a testimony of who he has been to you to other people in a way that begins to draw them in. Even if they don't realize it's happening. The power of visible influence. Somebody say, he sees me. Psalm 42 Verses 1 through 2 reads this way, As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. And listen to what the psalmist writes. Where can I go and stand before him? Where can I go and stand before him? It's interesting to contrast that psalm with the story of Adam and Eve and the moment that they sinned. The, the moment that sin first entered into the world, Adam and Eve did what? Somebody raise your hand and give me an answer. What did Adam and Eve first do? All the way in the back there. They hid. Come on, give away. City Life Church tonight. Amazon gift card. All right. You guys aren't clapping because you're bitter every week. We got to retrain you. Post-COVID, we're coming off the platform. Coming off the platform. Yeah, they hid. When, 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 they, when they did something that they knew that they weren't supposed to do, the, the human inclination was to hide from God. And, and it's interesting what we read in the song. It says, I thirst for God, the living God. Where can I go and to stand before him? One of the reasons why it was hard for me to step into in an environment of worship is because I felt shame for the life that I was living. I didn't want to step into an environment where I felt seen by God, and I did not want to step into an environment where I felt compelled to begin to get to know him because I had a sense of where that conversation might lead. And that conversation was more than likely going to lead to requirements of change for me and my life. I was a hider. And then all of a sudden... As I began to look around that room, I began to realize, because I knew some of the people's story that, that were there in that church, that a lot of those people, they had some things in their lives that were broken too. And I began to realize that this, this, this invitation of worship is not for people who have it all together. This, this invitation of worship means that that there is something waiting for us in that moment of experiencing God, and that if there are things that need to change in our lives, then if I'm going to find the strength to make those changes, I'm going to find it in that moment in God's presence. If, if you're waiting to engage in worship, once you, you've got your life completely together, guess what's never going to come for you? I love that the people that are given to us in the Bible as examples are people who are flawed. I love that the people that are given to us in the Bible as examples are people who make mistakes. I love that all of those people found this practice of stepping in longingly to the presence of God in spite of the brokenness that was inside of them. 
And I think what they discovered is what began to shift in me. That all the verses in the Bible that talk to me about not being able to escape from God's sight, it's not a threat, it's a promise. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is naked and exposed before his, his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. You can see that verse in two different ways. You can see that verse as a verse that is saying to you, be careful because God sees what you're doing. Or you can see that verse as a promise that God says, I see you everywhere you go. I see all the things that you're doing. So there's no sense in trying to hide from me because you can't. And if there is healing that needs to take place in your life, and if there is forgiveness that needs to come to you, and if you think that maybe there's some things in your life that maybe you, be, you need to begin to negotiate and let go of, then come, let's talk about those things. At some point, there's a turn and a pivot, and there was a turn and a pivot in my life where I knew that God wasn't saying to me, You've got to have it together before you come. What he was saying to me is, you're never going to get it together unless you start here in my presence. Proverbs 5, 21. Proverbs 15, 3. Numbers 6, 24 to 26. I'm not going to read those for the sake of time. But all of them talk about this idea of God seeing us. Stepping into this experience of psalmic worship can, can, can make you feel exposed. It, it, can, it can make you feel vulnerable. It can make you feel seen. And part of our humanity and part of what we suffer from is that when we feel ashamed, we want to drift into a place of hiding and isolation. But God says to us, no, you come and you be in my presence. It's the same way as a parent. When your children make a mistake, when your, 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 your children feel ashamed for some behavior, right? as, as a parent, that there's that, that moment where you, you, you draw them to you, you don't push them away from you because you want them to feel as though even if there's accountability, even if there needs to be correction, even if there needs to be punishment, that that doesn't change the nature of your relationship with them. And for so many of us, we've grown up in churches where this idea of our relationship with God is transactional. For, for too many of us, the Christianity we've been exposed to is, is, is based on this idea of whether or not I measure up. And at some point, there has to be a pivot and a turn where we begin to realize that God loves us. And that God wants you to feel his gaze upon your life. And that we begin to see that gaze as something that is a gift, something that heals, something that is restores, something that delivers, and something that sets us free. I hope that if you're here and you're contemplating this idea about psalmic worship, or maybe you're one of those people that maybe when you come in, it makes you a little bit uncomfortable. My, my, challenge, my challenge to you, my challenge to you is... is is to 
think about this desire inside of you to know God and to be known by him. And, and that, that once you begin to, to hold that desire in your hand, once you, once you begin to contemplate and reflect and talk about this, this, this feeling inside of you to know God and to be known by him, you're going to find that it's one of the greatest gifts that you will ever discover. So for me in my journey, I stopped coming late for worship. I started showing up on time. I started coming even though it was uncomfortable, even though I felt conspicuous. I, I did not stop doing the things. It was a Sunday morning church. They didn't have a Saturday night revelation. But even though I did not stop doing the things I was doing on Saturday night, are you tracking with me? I was still going on Sunday. Because this is one of the lies that the enemy says to you too. That, 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 that if you continue to do what you're doing on Friday and Saturday night and still go to church on the weekend, then you're, then you're a hypocrite. And my answer to that is, yes, I am. But, but sometimes you've got to be willing to believe that God wants to spend time with you even though you're not including him in every area of your life. Something began to change inside of me because I was willing to be in his presence even though my life was a wreck and my life was a mess. If your life is a wreck, if your life is a mess, then what I would say to you, you keep coming. You keep showing up early. You keep participating in moments like this. Because if there's going to be change that comes, it's going to become, it's going to come because you begin to learn who God's created and called you to be. I know one of the hardest things for me as I began to dip my toe in this, this idea of, of, of psalmic worship, I had a hard time being conspicuous. My personality, I'm naturally introverted. Anybody else naturally introverted? Right? In here? All right, come on. You're not even raising your hand. That's how introverted you are. We know who you are. We naturally introverted people are, are, are oftentimes people who are also intensely private. And, and so for me, psalmic worship, even though I, 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 I knew that I, I needed to be in God's presence, even though all of a sudden this idea began to, 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 to build inside of me that, that, that knowing God and being known by him was, was, was a hunger deep in my soul that I needed to explore, that that I, I wanted to begin to try to engage in what I saw other people doing. And as I began to open up the Bible, I began to see that many of these things were, were, were biblical practices. But, but I had this, this, this fear of, of other people seeing me, and, and, I, and I had this fear of maybe I was going to do it wrong. You know, because if you're new to an environment like this, you've, you've had these same thoughts. It's as though at some point... You know, that somebody's going to walk down the aisle and, and they're going to say, we have a new hand raiser here on aisle two, a new hand raiser. Right? Your, your, your fear begins to run a little bit wild. There's a little bit of paranoia. And so I, I felt like, right, that, that, that someone was going to see me and that maybe I wasn't doing it right. Or, 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 or maybe, right, there's this, 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 this fear that, that other people were watching me during the moment of worship, but they're not. There is a risk that you have to be willing to take 
to be conspicuous and to be seen in a moment of psalmic worship that is not bound by your personality. It's interesting that we read in the Bible about these practices of psalmic worship, which we're going to get a list in just a minute, that there's not an exception that's given for certain personality types. There's not an exception given for, 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 for people's, uh, their, their Enneagram number, right? All the things that we use to justify to why we're not going to engage conspicuously in a moment of public worship tend to always gravitate back towards this idea of who we see our personalities as. God, God doesn't change our personality because he gave us our personality. But he didn't give us that personality to be used as an excuse to not step into something that is an invitation that he has modeled for us in Scripture. Let me just give you this list of all the ways that we see psalmic worship described in the Bible. There's standing ovation. There's applause. There's dancing. There's shouting. There's the lifting of hands. There's singing. Sometimes there's quietness. Sometimes there's a moment of quiet reflection that we bring the service to. There's instruments. There's spiritual songs. When I was writing the description of this for the website, I was just putting a little reminder in there that our church practices the kind of worship we do not because we're trying to be modern or contemporary, but because we're trying to find something ancient. Something ancient. That the people of God have always entered into this expression of worship because in that moment of worship, this feeling of being seen by God and this feeling of knowing Him begins to minister to our soul in a deep and abiding way. I struggled with being conspicuous. One of the other things I struggled with was being conflicted. I struggled with being conflicted because sometimes I would show up for church and I'd, I didn't feel like I wanted to worship. Maybe I didn't feel like I wanted to worship because, again, I felt shame for the life that I was living. Maybe sometimes I didn't want to worship because I was just having a bad day or I just wasn't in a celebrative mood. And what I began to ha have to learn is that Part of worship is an act of discipline practice in spite of what I might feel like. One of the things that I try to tell people in funerals, with, meeting with families, is that you've got to make room in your heart for conflicting emotions. That, that at funerals, there's going to be times where maybe you're crying, but then there's other times where somebody's going to tell a story that maybe makes you laugh, and then you feel guilty about laughing because you're in a somber, sober occasion. And I say, don't, don't, don't do that. You, you've got to make room in your heart for these conflicting emotions. And the same is true for worship. You might come into a church setting just like this on a Saturday night, and, and then there's this moment of celebration that you're invited into, and you feel like, I can't step into that moment of celebration because I feel like I'm going to betray this feeling of sadness that's in my heart. And what I would say to you, it's okay. It's okay for you to make room for emotions in your heart that are incongruent. Acts 16.3 16 to 25. Oh, I love this story. 
Acts 16, 16 to 25 reads this way. One day as we were going down to the place of prayer, this is Paul and Silas on one of his missionary journeys. It says, we met a demon-possessed slave girl, and she was a fortune teller who earned a lot of money for her masters. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and instantly it left. Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered, so they grabbed Paul and Silas, they dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace, and the whole city was in an uproar because of these Jews. They shouted to the city officials, they are teaching customs that are illegal for us, as Romans to practice. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure that they did not escape, so the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. If that were happening to you and I, what, what do you think we would be inclined to begin to do? I'm just going to tell you my first inclination would not be to sing. You with me? My first inclination would not be to worship. Listen to what the text tells us. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening. Oh, it's good. I love the phrase that says around midnight. Because I don't think Paul and Silas, as soon as they got into that inner dungeon, they had been beaten severely. They had been put in these fetters and chains. I, don't, I think Paul and Silas, they struggled with their humanity just like you and I did. I think there were probably moments in time where they feared for their life. I'm sure there were moments where they feel like this was unfair. I'm sure there were moments where they were frustrated with God. God, we're here doing the things you ask us to do, and this is what happens to us. But, oh, somewhere around midnight, something began to change inside of them. Worship began to well up from within their heart. I'm not even going to tell you the end of the story. You're going to have to read it yourself, Acts chapter 16. When you and I find ourselves in places of sorrow, when you and I find ourselves in places where we're facing the impossible like tonight, can I just tell you, there, if you will let it come, there is a worship that will begin to well up inside of your heart. There is a praise that will begin to come out of you that is not in any way connected to the reality of your circumstance. There is nothing in this story that tells us that Paul or Silas had some prophetic revelation that if they were to worship, they would be set free. There's nothing in this story that tells us that they had some prophetic unction that if they were to begin to sing praises to their God that something supernatural was going to take place. I, th I think what we're seeing here in this text is God saying to you and to me to not let our circumstance silence the worship that wants to come out of our hearts. That, that, that this moment of standing in his presence, this, this, this experience that we can have to, to, to worship him is not circumstance dependent. It's not dependent on our emotional state. 
Psalm 103, 1 through 2 reads this way. Let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart, I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things that he does for me. As you begin to dip your toe in the water into this experience of psalmic worship, you're going to have to wrestle with this feeling of being conspicuous. You're, you're going to have to wrestle sometimes with this feeling of being conflicted. And then the last thing that I began to realize is that I wrestled with this feeling of being consistent. I wrestled with this feeling of being consistent. Psalm 49 through 11 says this way, I have told all your people about your justice. I have not been afraid to speak out. As you, O Lord, well know, I have not kept the good news of your justice hidden in my heart. I have talked about your faithfulness and saving power. I have told everyone in the great assembly, come on, in the great assembly, of your unfailing love and faithfulness. This idea of struggling with being consistent is born out of this belief that worship is a spiritual activity that should be a regular part of our lives because we believe that if I'm going to be spiritually vibrant, that spiritual activities have to be regularly present. Worship can't just be something in my life that I do because it makes me feel good. There's something inside of me that has to begin to turn towards this idea and this belief that there are practices that we find here in the Bible that God is saying to you and me, if you want to be spiritually healthy, then you have to do these things by virtue of them being a discipline. Reading the Bible is a discipline. Serving is a discipline. Generosity is a discipline. There are 12 pathways that we teach here as a church, 12 pathways that should be a regular part of our lives. Can I just tell you, sometimes I don't feel like doing those 12 things. But I know this, if I don't do those 12 things regularly in my life, I'm not going to be a spiritually healthy and a spiritually vibrant person. Jeremiah 6.16 reads this way. Is it on the screen? It's on the screen. This is what the Lord says. Stop at the crossroads and look around. Ask for the old godly way and walk in it. Travel its path and you will find rest for your soul. But you reply, no, that's not the road we want. How many times is that us? Right? How many times have we woken up in the morning and there's this unction from the Holy Spirit to read the Bible and we say that's not the road we want? How many times has there been an invitation to show up in the aqueducts to be a tutor to a child? And then our response is, that's not the road that we want. How many times does God put in front of us an, an invitation to do something that he knows is going to help us become a more spiritually vibrant person? At some point in my life, at some point in my life, something began to turn in me where I knew that I had to begin to surrender and submit myself to God's ways. Something inside of me had to trust that if God is inviting me into these practices, that it's because he has my best interest at heart, not because he's a taskmaster. 
In Luke 9, 57 to 62, we find this story where Jesus was inviting people to follow him. And it's interesting that the reasons why that the people gave him for why they couldn't come right then in that moment were all good things. It's interesting, sinfulness is not the only thing that crowds out spiritual practices from our lives. Sinfulness is not the only thing that crowds out spiritual practices from our lives. If our lives are too busy for these 12 pathways to be regularly present, then then my life is out of order. God has given us all the time that we need to practice the things that he invites us to practice. We like to encourage people, if these 12 pathways are familiar to you, we've got a little green book back there. It's free for you. You can take it. But there's an exercise. I try to do this exercise at least twice a year. I take those 12 pathways, and I make three columns. The first column is red. The next one's yellow, and the next one's green. And next to each pathway, I put an X. Red is means that it's not present in my life at all. Yellow means that it's only present some of the time. And then green means that it's a regular part of my life. Twice a year, I try to do that exercise because I want to hold myself accountable for those 12 practices to be regularly present in my life because I know I'm not going to be spiritually healthy or spiritually vibrant without of them. There is a consistency that you have to choose to bring in your life, and worship is one of them. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. This is Daniel 5.18. It reads this way, Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. This is the story where where Daniel was called into an audience with the king because a hand had appeared on the wall and had written something mysterious on the wall and no one could interpret it. And so they brought Daniel in and God prophetically gave him the answer for what that writing meant. And as I was reading this a couple of weeks ago, I saw these, these, these words, majesty and sovereignty and glory and honor. And I, and, and I felt the whisper of the Holy Spirit. Fred, this is part of what worship is about right here, these four words. These four words. That this practice of worship is a gift to us because it invites us into an environment and a setting where we get to surrender our hearts to his sovereignty. There's something begins to happen in you and me when we step into a moment of expressive praise and worship. Something in our heart begins to yield to the sovereignty of God. I'm convinced that one of the turning points for me years ago, back in the early 90s, is my life was a mess and my life was a wreck that stepping into moments of expressive praise and expressive worship began to change who I was because something in my heart, instead of running from his sovereignty, began to be drawn to it. Something happens to you and me when we step into these moments of expressive praise. We begin to sense his majesty. If you would just take a risk, take your hands out of your pocket, Look at the words on the screen. Close your eyes and begin to use those words to express the feelings in your heart. Maybe if you're uncomfortable with raising your hands, we joke palms up is the first step. Just hands at the side. Just physically posturing yourself in a way that the Bible leads us into. 
It's an incredible thing when you begin to sense the majesty of your heavenly Father smiling down upon you. You will begin to find that as you begin to enter into worship, you will know his glory like never before. In those moments of worship, God's going to begin to speak to you and remind you of all the times that he was moving in your life when you didn't even know he was doing it. In those moments of worship, you'll begin to find that the Holy Spirit will begin to bring to remembrance all the incredible things that he's done in people's lives around you. It it might be that as you step into these moments of worship, you're going to remember Bible stories that you haven't thought of in a long time of where God has moved through people's lives throughout all of history. And then all of a sudden in that moment of worship, your hands aren't going to be able to stay down at your side anymore because his glory is going to be so grand. You're going to feel it. You're going to step into these moments of expressive praise and expressive worship. Stand with me. And then all of a sudden, something inside of you is going to want to honor him. Something inside of you is, 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 is going to want to give him praise because of the honor that you know that he is due. Because of the honor that you know that is rightfully his. Father, I pray for all the people that are in this room tonight and all the people that are watching online. And I pray that for people who these moments of expressive praise, these moments of expressive worship, is, it's unfamiliar. These, maybe there's, there's doubt. Maybe there's fear. I pray, God, that they would take a chance. I pray that maybe even in this song, as we step into this moment together, that somebody's going to be willing to be a little bit conspicuous for the first time. That, that instead of just singing under their breath, they're going to let some volume begin to flow out of their mouth. Maybe for, for people that are, that are here, they feel a little conflicted. They feel unworthy. They feel ashamed. That they would just set aside those human emotions just for a moment. And relish in the idea and the reality that you love them, that you love them in spite of the mistakes that they make. I pray, Father, for every person that's here, every person that's watching online right now, who maybe in this moment they're thinking to themselves, it's been a long time since I've stepped back into a moment of worship. I pray that tonight would be the moment they step back in. I pray, Father, that tonight's going to be a night where, where all of a sudden this, this, this belief and this hope that spiritual activity doesn't have to be an exception, but it can help define who they are. I pray, God, that there is an honor that would well up inside of our hearts that would rise up before your throne into the heavens and that you would hear it from us together. In Christ's name, come on, let's worship.